ever. Cynthia Lim thought she had the perfect life, a husband who was a successful attorney, a fulfilling career in education, two teenage sons in private schools, and a home in Los Angeles, rich in books, music, and art. Then, in 2003, her husband, Perry, suffers a cardiac arrest and brain injury, lingering in a coma for 10 days before slowly awakening. A different person emerges, one who has lost his short-term memory and is fully dependent on others. Married for 20 years, she doesn't know how much of his former self will return as she fights for the treatment and care that he needs. Welcome, Cynthia, to the show. Thank you, Javelin. Thank you. Thank you for spending time with us on this Wednesday afternoon. How are you today? I'm good. And thank you for having me. Oh, what a pleasure. What a joy. I have just finished uh, your memoirs, and as anticipated when I first started, it has moved me as the reader in different directions, full of knowledge that that I wouldn't have access to, full of answers that I would not have uh, had access to had you not gone through this experience. And so I am happy that you are sharing this story with us. Thank you. So tell our listening audience, I've given them the frame of the picture. Fill in that frame, the night that this event happened in your life. Yeah, so the the book starts with the incident of my husband uh, suffering cardiac arrest. And we were in Portland, Oregon on a family vacation. We were there just overnight for a family bar mitzvah. And... Um, you know, he had this cardiac arrest, and he was taken to emergency, and he was in a coma for two weeks. So for two weeks, you know, we were in the city that wasn't ours, away from home, and not really knowing if he was ever going to wake up. So the the brain injury that he suffered was, it's called anoxia. It's, it's what happens when your brain is deprived of oxygen. So when he went underwent cardiac arrest, he pretty much lost his heart wasn't beating for like seven minutes and so a lot of those brain cells were dead and um you know we were given very dire um prognosis in the hospital there nobody knew if he was ever going to wake from his coma and if he did wake up how disabled he would be there was a possibility he'd be in a vegetative state uh but you know after 10 days he he did wake up and uh we transferred him back to Los Angeles, where we live, and he went through a whole series of hospitals from, you know, like an acute hospital to rehabilitation hospital, and finally we found um, a rehab center for him about 45 minutes from our home, and he stayed there for like 100 days, and uh, he really wasn't the same person after he woke up and came back, so we had to, me and my sons, we had to kind of, you know, reacquaint ourselves with this person and figure out what parts of him were still remaining and what was lost. And that was a very, very difficult time. And uh, there's the statistics that 80% of marriages 
end in divorce after brain injury. How did you uh, not become one of those statistics? Yeah, well, you know, that was something I read on the Internet because I, I, I read all these blogs. I really wanted to find, you know, what is it, what, what do families go through and how do they stay with their partners, you know, what happens to marriages. And I really couldn't find much. And what we found, or in Perry's case, is what remained in him was his love for me and, and his family. And that never wavered through this whole process. So, you know, when he woke from his coma, he went through this very uh, agitated phase where he wasn't making sense. Uh, he'd kind of have aggressive behaviors. He'd be taking off his clothes. And he'd be like this person I didn't recognize and didn't know. But whenever I walked in the room, he, you know, his eyes would just light up in a smile. And he, you know, I was able to calm him down or, you know, I was able, he would respond to me. And, um... That remained constant throughout his brain injury or throughout his disability. Uh, I think we knew for certain that he recognized us. He still experienced joy and love whenever we were around. And I think that's that's really what the story is about, is this love story, not so much about the mechanics of his brain injury. There, So you... Name the your memoir wherever you are, and, and that's coming from the passage I read. That there's one point in the story where you ask him, "Are you in you're in one room? He's in another room, or you're going into another room?" And you ask him, "Where does he want to go?" And he says, "Wherever you are." Yes. Okay. Yeah, and and also the title was kind of. Um, the questioning that I had, too, through this whole process of his disability, like, you know, where is he? And, and you know, I would love him wherever he was. So it was kind of my searching for him and, and his wanting to be with me. And at the time that this happened to Perry, it also triggered some things in you going back to your own childhood and how you wanted the lives of your Grown, your one son who's going off to college, another one into is in high school, and your world, their world, everyone's world falling apart, and it took you back to what you did not want to happen, and, and that goes back to your your mom's loss. Yes. So my my father was killed in a plane crash when I was seven, and my mother was left as a widow with five children. You know, I think the oldest was. Fifteen at the time, so she had five kids. She was uh, an immigrant from China, and she didn't speak any English. And so, you know, as a seven-year-old and, and growing up, I kind of saw her crumble and and really be dependent on others. So she really depended on us as you know, as children, to help translate the world for her, you know, the English world, and and really help her a lot. And I felt this tremendous sense of guilt because I was the last kid to leave the house. And I, I felt really guilty when I went away to college um, because I felt like, oh, you know, part of me felt like I should be staying there and taking care of my mother. And and so as a child, I, I and as I grew up to be a teenager, I, I vowed to myself that I, I would never be in that position, that I would, you know... I, 
I would learn how to speak the language. I'd know how to do my finances, and I'd know how to take care of myself in case anything like this happened. And um, when this did happen, uh, you know, my oldest son was, it was the summer that he had graduated high school, and he wanted, he was going to go away to college that fall. And uh, while my husband was in the hospital, he, he said, you know, maybe I should defer for a year and stay home because I think you need me. And, and I, you know, instinctively just said, no, you know, I, I don't want you to do that. And I, you know, I don't, I didn't want to laden my kids with that kind of guilt that they had to stay home and, and take care of me because I, I felt like, you know, they need to live their own lives. They need to be independent. And, uh, I could take care of myself. What was also very interesting is, and so open in terms of your telling the story, you tell the story of how it w- is, is the love and a part of that love of Love and Perry in this new place that you both find yourselves. There's a part of love is, is the anger or the frustration that goes with it and the questioning of what you can and cannot do. Like there's a moment when you... You say, I, you can't wait to, to the care take, caregivers come there because you can't do this. And you question if you, where does he need to go, what needs to happen, because it's just too hard. And that's a part of the struggle, which I appreciate it. Can you share what gave you the wherewithal to be so honest when you decided to write this book and not just to say, oh, I just was this devoted human being and just laid my life down and, but, this, I was a human being that struggled with every turn and every decision. Yeah, well, you know, I, I, I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, oh, you must be a saint. Oh, I can't do what you could do. And I, it always makes me feel bad because I, I, I am, I'm not a saint, and I wanted to kind of expose what caregiving really is like. It's not... Uh, it's not all nice and sweet, and it's really, really hard. And I, I think that's what I was kind of seeking in a book when this happened to me. It's like, you know, I, I would read these books, and I, and I think, well, come on, what is the real story here? Uh, it can't always be so peachy and, and nice. And so I felt that it's really important to kind of expose that so that when you're a caregiver and you're feeling those feelings of resentment or you're feeling like you can't take it anymore or, you know, this is way too hard, that it, it's normal to feel that way. It's not abnormal. And um, you have to go through that because you, I, I can't think of a person that is a caregiver that would not feel that way. You know, those moments of resentment or just uh, exasperation. And so I, I really wanted to paint a realistic portrait portrait of what it means to be a caregiver. And you did that and it reminded me and and in listening to you now it reminds me Cynthia that uh, of what Paul McCarthy said when his wife Linda was struggling with cancer and she passed and people were saying he was such a saint and and the way he cared and stayed with her and he in an interview just like you're sharing he said you know I need to say this for people who are listening uh, that are struggling with people that they love, that are challenged with whatever they're inflicted with, whatever that might be. He said there were moments where there was anger. There was moments where you want to run on both ends. There, was, there are moments that are 
that we don't associate with love, but they're actually teaching moments. And they give us the space to fill our, our emotions. And you're sharing. And I, and I do appreciate you putting that in the book and sharing that. Because it, people listening, we all know the human experience of having people go through challenges. And we're their care, caretakers, their caregivers. Which right. is interesting because you really learned a lot about that system when you uh, had to have people come in when you brought Perry home. Uh, we're listening to um, memoirs, Cynthia Lim. Uh, KPFA, I'm your host, Javelin Richards, and we're talking about her memoirs, Wherever You Are, a memoir of love, marriage, and brain injury. You had some, there was a learning curve about the people that was coming to the house. Yes. Uh, you know, because I, my husband had a full-time caregiver uh, that was here when I worked. And then we had, at the very beginning, when our insurance you know, still paid for all this stuff. We had, you know, a speech therapist and a occupational therapist, and uh, it was just a, a an experience you have to get used to all these people being in your house because, you know, I think a lot of times people think of their house as their haven or their safe place or, you know, where they could just relax. But um, all of a sudden, you know, there's, like, t- tons of people in the house, like, all the time, Um and and that was something that we had to get used to, uh, you know. As 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 the years progressed, we had fewer and fewer, and you know, insurance stopped paying for a lot of those therapists. Uh, and and I, you know, once the caregiver came uh, left, uh, it was just me, and 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 we learned how to kind of enjoy the silence in the house after that. And then you had inside of this story in learning to find where Perry's at and finding a way in life after things have shifted. You had your own medical emergency. Yes. I had uh, an ovarian cyst. And um, it, it luckily it turned out to be benign. Um, but, you know, I went through this whole uh, questioning of mortality. It's like, how is this fair? You know, this is happening to my husband. How could I get sick in the middle of this? Uh, but luckily, it it turned out to be nothing. What did you discover about yourself, Cynthia? I know there's many things, but was anything that sh- that sh- surprised you? Like, for instance, you knew that you wanted. You didn't want your children to be dependent on you at a time when the world was falling apart and a time when they were moving out into the world, into their adultness. So you knew that part, what you didn't want. Was there something that you also discovered about yourself that surprised you? Yes. Part of it was, you know, the realization that I had to take care of myself, too, uh, that I couldn't just devote myself to, you know, being a mom to my kids, being a caregiver, and then giving 100% at work, too, that I had to take, it was okay for me to take time for myself. Um, And that was, you know, that's a hard thing to come to, and I think a lot of women struggle with that, too, because you're you're pulled in so many different ways. And, And so I started, you know, doing travels, without my husband and traveling to, you know, places that I couldn't really take him. But it it was hard to give myself the permission to do that, to say, you know what, it's okay. He's well taken care of at home. I could take these trips. I can, I'm not brain injured. I need to, you know, 
take care of that side of me too. There's two kind of love stories that you present us with in, in your memoirs. The journey when you first met him, very seemingly opposite people. Tell us that love story. Yeah, so my husband and I met in college, the very first day of college at UC Santa Barbara. We were standing in line to register our bikes, and um, I come from a pretty conservative Chinese family in uh, Salinas, you know, a farming community, um, which is also a pretty conservative town, too. He grew up in Los Angeles uh, in a Jewish family, and he was just so different from everything i grew up knowing and he seemed so worldly because you know he grew up in in LA and had done museums did all this stuff uh so it it didn't seem like um you know we'd be a likely couple but yeah we you know we fell in love after that first year in college uh we were separated that first summer I went home to Salinas after our freshman year and he stayed in Santa Barbara and um after that summer we decided you know we're never going to spend a summer apart again and uh and we were together since then and we hadn't been separated you know all all the years that we've been together and how are your sons doing they're doing okay i think uh, they have you know very independent lives Uh, my oldest son is an artist in in new york and my youngest son is a navigator in the Air Force, and so they they have um, developed very independent lives, and I think that they're very resilient. And his this uh, challenge happened in two thousand and three. Yes, he was forty seven at the time, kind of at the peak of his career. Uh, well, we were both forty seven at the time. And then he passed away this spring. Yes, unexpectedly. Uh, I retired from work last year thinking that we'd have a lot more time together, and um, he passed away the end of April this year. So it's just been a few months, and, uh, you know, as a family, we're still mourning his loss. What is one of the things that I know that you wanted to share your journey and your memoirs and to be able to, part of it came from not having reading material that was speaking to your reality or and the lack of material. What would you like to, for your memoirs to give people? What are the part that you think would be incredibly important for people who are inside of, however they define your experience at whatever space, beginning, middle, end, what would you want them to get, to have? Well, first, I I would hope that this would reach caregivers and caregivers of any any kind, any flavor, whether you're caring for a parent or a child or a spouse. Um, I, you know, I think that caregiving is really the ultimate act of love because... You know, you, you you do it for the people that you love. And and so I'm hoping that it will help caregivers not feel so alone in that experience or people with that are caring for people with disabilities because that could be a very isolating experience. You know, I, I think before this ever happened, um, I didn't really notice people in wheelchairs. I You know, I didn't really 
when I was wa- walking down the street, I didn't notice that there were curb cuts or how easy it was for, you know, people in wheelchairs to cross the street. Um, so I'm hoping that, that you know, it could reach those people that are in the throes of caregiving. And the other audience I'm hoping that this will help is, is the people in the medical community, the doctors and nurses and social workers and therapists, because, you know, what they say really matters. And um, I think because of the nature of my husband's brain injury, it was anoxia, and there's not a lot of research on it. It's not a sexy topic like, you know, Alzheimer's or dementia. There's Nobody funds it. Nobody does any research on it. And... I found that doctors were very dismissive whenever I asked for help or suggestions. You know, they basically would say, well, there's nothing you could do. You know, those those brain cells are dead. And so I'm hoping that um, the medical community will kind of think about the words that they use when they talk to families in that situation because we're just hanging on to this thin thread of hope that, you know, we see improvement or that, you know, that we can cope with what's happening. And it's not very helpful for doctors to say, wow, what do you, ex-, you know, what do you expect? Or how much improvement can you expect? There's nothing we can do. So I think that's kind of the worst thing to hear when you're a caregiver or when you're in this, you know, uh, experience a disability to hear, well, there's nothing we could do. Because to me, there's always something you can do. So if there are people in the medical field listening to you right now and you're giving them that, oh, yeah, that is kind of the way we approach things and not having that maybe the training to speak differently, would you, do you have any words that you would have liked to have heard that help them in that training, that understanding and to research what that language could look like? You know, it wasn't until years and years later, just recently, we met with a neurologist, because we met with neurologists throughout this whole process, the 15 years that he was disabled. And the first time after, you know, 14 years, a neurologist said to me, how can I help you? And it it knocked me away. I was like, I can't believe there's, they're asking me that. And, and it could be as simple as that. How can I help you? Or, you know... I understand what you're going through and how can I make it easier for you or, you know, just acknowledge, acknowledge what the family's going through. I think it could be as simple as that. And so how was it that you were able for the years that the two of you were together, how were you able to carry on a relationship that looked very different than before? Well, one of the things that that remained with him was this love that he had for me. And so he would say these things to me that, you know, like when we, uh, when I um, retired from work, you know, when I was working, I would leave the house at 7 in the morning. So he was always asleep. But when I left, and we never woke up together during the week. Um, and after I retired, you know, we'd wake up at the same time. Because, you know, the caregiver would come later in the day. And so uh, this one morning he woke up and he was really happy. He was, like, smiling. And uh, and I said, Perry, what's going on? What are you so happy about? And he just looked at me and he said, you. You're here. You. <laughs> so. In those moments, 
when he was agitated, and you talk about it in your writings, and that there would be a look that he wasn't really there. He's in another place, the taking off the clothes, the agitation. And then there's these other clear moments where he's looking at you, and he's right there, seeing in that way. Did medically they have any understanding of that, and or what created the difference inside of the two worlds? Is just the brain injury itself? Yeah, I think it was just the nature of anoxia. Uh, no, they they never. Um, I, I never got a medical explanation to that. I mean, he just he had very fluid, mo- uh, lucid moments, and he had you know moments where he was kind of dazed and and you know not really paying attention. But um, it was like that throughout uh, his brain injury. He would have these moments of lucidity that just surprised us all. So uh, my very good friends live across the street, and we have dinner every week. And um, there'd be times where we'd be having dinner, the four of us, and the three of us would have this very lively conversation. And uh, out of the blue, Perry would say something that was spot on to whatever topic it was that we were talking about. And the three of us would be totally surprised, like, oh, he was totally following our conversation and, uh, you know, and could contribute. So that was always, always a pleasant surprise. And um, there were lots of those moments. It just wasn't, you know, very consistent. How did the relationships, because he he had worked at the law firm and it was close relationships and and from the readings, there's a lot of people that 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 this core group of people all had these one um, commitments to each other and friendship. Did this experience, how did it change their lives? Oh, I, I don't know if I could speak for them, but I know he had a very, very good friend at, at the law firm that we continued to see, um, you know, even after his brain injury. And he, he told me that his experience of work had totally changed after this happened to Perry because he felt like kind of all the fun had gone out of their their group, you know, once once he got ill. Um, yeah, so I, I think it affected his close friends. I think, you know, I think it affected everybody that he that he touched in his life. So in the last couple of minutes, if you can, one of the things if you could do is to give our listening audience um, information on how to get your memoir, if they, they would like to have that as a part of their journey, uh, wherever you are, a marriage, a memoir of love, marriage, and brain injury by Cynthia Lim, how could they get hold of um, to get one of your books? Yes, it. The publication date is September 1st, a, a few days away, and it's available now, pre-order on I think, for whatever reason, that we lost that last part of it, so... Oh, it's available on pre-order at Amazon. Okay, wonderful. And will you be doing any speaking engagements here in the Bay Area? Um, I'm not sure yet, uh, but I do have a book launch in... um, Los Angeles on September 16th. And for anyone listening that would like you to come speak on this topic and on different uh, whatever platform that is, how would they reach you? Uh, my 
I have a, my website. Um, it's CynthiaLimWriting.com. You can contact me there. All right, Cynthia, I want to uh, appreciate you for spending time with me and trusting me with your story today. Uh, and it's been a joy, uh, a joy in a way that says it's the joy of learning, the joy of learning your story and what it can teach and what it taught me. So thank you. Thank you so much. You have been listening to Cynthia Lim cover to cover Javelin's Bistro, her memoirs, wherever you are. And I will see you next month. Um, have a good time and enjoy. Bye-bye. of an Israeli army general, born and raised in Jerusalem. Miko Pellet tells his compelling story in The General's Son, Journey of an Israeli in Palestine. Dedicated to tearing down the separation wall, Miko works with the resistance to create a democratic state with equal rights for Israelis and Palestinians. He'll discuss all this as well as his urgent new book, Injustice, the story of the Holy Land Foundation 5, on Thursday evening, September 6th, beginning 7.30 p.m. at First Congregational Church, 2345 Channing Way in Berkeley. This KPFA benefit, wheelchair accessible, co-sponsored by the Middle East Children's Alliance and Jewish Voice for Peace, will be hosted by Nora Barrows-Friedman, brilliant voice of the electronic intifada and KPFA's flashpoints. Tickets available online at brownpapertickets.com and Supportive independent bookstores. Do not miss Miko Pellet, September 6. 94.1 KPFA, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org.